Drinks, food, art, fun. This is Hops and Spirits Kentucky. Another week is in the books and we're moving on and we're leaving the flight night, but we're staying in the bourbon world here on Hops and Spirits Kentucky this week as we talk with Catoctin Creek. Um, and while they may not be in Kentucky in terms of where the distillery is located, they're in a commonwealth and at one time Kentucky was part of Virginia. So it's all relative if you think about it. But before we get into our interview, we got plenty of news and notes and a lot in the beer world this week. And we start with October anniversaries uh, for Kentucky's craft breweries. Against the Grain celebrated its birthday October 4th. Broken Throne on October 6th. 1020 celebrates October 20th. West 6th Nulu on October 28th. And Pivot October 29th are their anniversaries. And a couple events going on uh, here soon. Grey Line Station and the Kentucky Guild of Brewers are hosting Brews and Bites, a beer and food festival on Saturday, October 22nd from noon till 5 p.m. In the parking lot of Grey Line Station in Lexington, you can get your tickets to sip on pints from 20 plus breweries from around the state. Tickets are $50 or $60 for VIP, which gets you in an extra hour from noon to 1 p.m. Designated drivers get a discount. Uh, you can find more information at graylinestation.com slash brews-bites for more info and tickets. Louisville Beer Week is back with its inaugural Louisville Beer Festival at German American Club at 1840 Lincoln Avenue on Friday, October 21st. Tickets are $10 and include a commemorative tasting glass for beer samples. There will also be food and live music by the Lost Pockets. Louisville Beer Week will continue through Sunday, October 30th. And then in bourbon news, because yes, we do it all here. Uh, Blue Run Spirits will be investing about $50 million to bring a new whiskey operation to Georgetown. Uh, the project will create a 35,000-square-foot distillery, a 20,000-square-foot rickhouse, and about 45 jobs. So look out for that soon. And like I said, uh, we've got a cool chat for you. Up next is our Q&A as we go beyond Kentucky. Yes, we go beyond Kentucky on occasionally. This time with Becky Harris of Catoctin Creek Distilling in Virginia. Hear how she and her husband launched this distillery that is focusing on Virginia rye whiskey. And yes, you can pick up a bottle here in Kentucky. So don't worry. Even though we are going to Virginia, you can still get their, their, uh, their bottles and get to try what they have here in Kentucky. Enjoy. Did you know Hops and Spirits is more than just this podcast? Check out hopspirits.com for our latest episode release, past episodes, interviews with interesting folks in the alcohol industry, and so much more. Just go to hopspirits.com. Feel free to wait until this podcast is done. Joining us here on the Q or joining us here on Hops and Spirits Kentucky for the QA, they're Slightly beyond Kentucky, but you can find them on the shelves here in the Commonwealth. And technically, they're in a Commonwealth, too. So I guess it all <laughs> works out. Please welcome in co-founder and distiller of Catoctin Creek Distilling, Becky Harris. Becky, welcome. Hey, thank you so much. Excited to be here. And did I say it right? Catoctin, right? You absolutely did. You absolutely ah. did. And <laughs> honestly, you know, back when Virginia started making rye, Kentucky was actually a part of Virginia. So... World there we go. Kissing cousins in this in this part of the country. <laughs> Two commonwealths that are that are, are making some some good good juice to put in some good in some bottles and and we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But before I even get to that part, I always call this the Cliff Notes version. Uh, just a little bit of background on, on yourself. Not too much. Don't I don't want to give away all your secrets just yet. But no. nice little background. <laughs> <laughs> An open book. Um, so I'm a chemical engineer. Um, I studied. Uh, I studied chemical engineering uh, 
you know, way more years ago than I care to think about. And um, I started out working in a company that did um, polystyrene foam um, containers. And then I worked for a company that did copper and nickel plating on plastics. And then I worked for a company that made contact lenses. And so when my husband came to me in 2009 and said, hey, I was thinking we should do a distillery. Um, you know, I was like, I can learn to make whiskey because contact lenses are actually really hard to make. And uh, I, I said, uh, yeah, you know, can we make money? Can you make money making whiskey? And that was, it's still the, that's still the biggest challenge, right? In this industry is converting mm -hmm. it into money. Um, making delicious whiskey has been done by people in all walks of life, some in the woods, some in factories for, you know, since, since the country was founded. So uh, the business side is definitely the challenge. Um, I am mostly, I am the head of production um, been working in that, uh, since it's since 2009, as we, uh, grew our business and our brand. Well, and, and your husband, Scott, he couldn't come on. He's, I guess, handles the more numbers side on the, you know, for the, the business and, and you get to do the fun part, truthfully, <laughs> I, I, I <laughs> yes. think, but yes, I, he would, would agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, but really, so this kind of just started on maybe not a whim, but him going, Hey, let's do this kind of the second career, you know, something a little different. I mean, is that really yeah. just as yeah, simple he, as the conversation was? A hundred percent. He likes to say that government contracting taught him a great love of drinking. So he had spent 20 years working in, um, in, uh, government contracts. So, you know, like stuff for the Navy. Um, and basically, you know, when you're managing a government contract of a certain size, it's like running a small business. You basically have all the same things that they do. And so he, you know, felt like that was, he had the, the skills for that. And like I said, honestly, I was comfortable after working in all those different industries. I was like, you know, I can, I, I can learn this. This isn't going to be, you know, um, of course, everything's harder than you think it is. It always looks easy from the outside, but, um, you know, it's been a real, it's been a really, really great ride. You know, we've had good success and, you know, made products that we're really proud of. Well, and, and you touched on it. You're an engineer by by trade, and that's really what people might not know, or they might know. I know talking to the folks, that's where a lot of the distillers come from. They come from some type of engineering science background, and then they they go, you know what? That's fun, but this might be a little bit more more, more fun. So, but I mean, how did that engineering background really help you, you know, get into this and be able to distill amazing things? Um, you know, I, I like to tell folks that, you know, when you're in engineering, really, especially in chemical engineering, you know, so much of, of what we, the curriculum was, was focused on, um, you know, a lot of it was on um, basically petroleum manufacturing, you know. Um, so what you're learning is you're learning, you're learning a language, you're learning processes by which to make decisions and um, how to create repeatable processes. And so it, you know, distillation itself is not, you know, rocket science, if you will. It is, you know, something that's really well understood. So it's how do you make it the same way every day? How do you really, you know, create a process where you can make, you know, good solid product every day 
you don't have a lot of problems, you are following all the regulations, you are operating, you know, under the law and with, you know, good, good sense of keeping your people safe. And all of that is really, you know, engineering kind of, of a mindset. So it, it absolutely was right, a, right away, a really good fit because, you know, that was that that was where I came up was process engineering. So no matter what the process, I can build a, a a way to keep it consistent. And so that was you know really where you know where where we started off with it. Now I've got a really good question for you, and I, and I, I think this really is 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 cool to to see. You weren't a big whiskey drinker though. You it wasn't like you <laughs> you 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 had a big collection and got into it. You, th- this is something you've grown to love, uh, I'm sure, over the time, but you weren't a big whiskey drinker. No, I wasn't. Um, I hadn't drunk. I, I really didn't drink much of, you know, I wasn't a big beer drinker. I drank a little bit of wine. I I, I knew enough. Uh, I, I had tried a number of different scotches, and that was kind of what my flavor profile was. But when I started, we um, decided to make rye because of the history of rye in Virginia, which was, you know, really the deepest, you know, one of the deepest things in this part of the country was the making of rye whiskey. And what I found was that rye was really a flavor profile that appealed to me naturally. Um, it took me a long time actually to find the profiles of bourbon that I enjoy. I still, there's a lot of bourbons that just don't hit me right. And that's, you know, kind of how these, you know, the, the, what I always talk to people and tell people is that, you know, when you're tasting spirits and whiskeys or bourbons or scotches, whatever it is, it's all a exploration and trying to find what appeals to your palate. Everybody is individual. And, you know, just because, you know, somebody else loves something doesn't mean that you're, it's going to be where you really, you know, react with that too. So it's, it's fun to kind of encourage people to just take a chance on something and, and take a chance more than once. You know, sometimes it's like, you know, you get it's, it's by thinking about, by exploring flavors, by kind of revisiting things under different conditions that you really find, okay, what is it about this flavor that doesn't appeal to me? And then you can kind of parse that. And, and then you're like, oh, but this one does. And so, you know, it took me a long time, but like I said, I started to find bourbons where I was like, oh, I really enjoy this. And, and, uh, but, but still rise my, rise my, my baby. I, I, I totally understand. That's one where when I first got into all this, I, I was like, yeah, right. It's spicy. Now, now it's probably my, my go-to choice. And, and it, it's something that's super flavorful. And, you know, for, for you all, you know, you mentioned going that rye whiskey route. It's, it's interesting to me because not everyone, most places have a rye, but normally it's kind of maybe their second, you know, uh-huh. second flagship or it's a later edition. This is just basically, this is what you guys do. This is what you focus on with a few other things as well, but this is the mothership. And yeah. is it because of that history of Virginia? And, and can you maybe expand on that a little bit too? Yeah. You know, um, so as soon as people came here in Virginia and one of the things they were talking about, like, b- b- you know, before there was a United States, if you will, there were the colonies and it was colonial and it was agricultural. And when you look at the history of agriculture at that time, it was primarily tobacco. That's what folks are raising. Um, Tobacco is really hard on the soil. It depletes the soil a lot. So what is paired with it? Growing rye. Rye can be used to replenish the soil. 
And then you've got this grain, which you then can harvest, and it becomes a form of currency, a easy form of storage. And at that time, who was doing the distilling? It was women. It was women because the men, um, whether they were free or enslaved, were all working in the fields because of the nature of growing tobacco and the way that it is incredibly labor intensive. And so the whole Mid Atlantic was drinking rye whiskey before there was ever a bourbon. And once, you, when you look at the time, at the time of George Washington, so, you know, um, some of your listeners may know that, you know, there is a, a distillery at Mount Vernon and it's got five relatively small stills in modern terms. But at the time that George Washington was distilling, he had the biggest distillery in the, in the colony in the United States. And that was right after the Revolutionary War. And at that time, there were probably 13,000 distilleries in the United States, 3,500 in Virginia alone. Different context, in 2009, when Scott and I started our company, there were 200 distilleries in the United States. Now there are 2,300. We still haven't gotten even close to the number of distilleries, which shows you what it, how distilling in the early days of this country was really tied to the land in a way that it pretty soon moved away from. So as you started to move through into the 1800s and further, what happened was that distilling became less of a... Uh, a small agriculture project, and it became a volume project. And at that point, distilling was no longer the work of the women anymore. It was taken over by men. It's now stills are big, you know, big machines now. And it was, it became the work of men. And as with so many things in the U.S., because of the nature of, um, you know, women in that economy, things weren't under their names, things weren't noted, that history was lost. And so it's, you know, that changed. So when people are talking about, you know, oh, Pennsylvania rye, Maryland rye, you know, all those kinds of those whiskeys that people think about, most of those that even exist in any form today were made late 1800s, early 1900s in that time frame. They were not made at the time that I'm talking about. At that time, whiskey was mostly unaged. It was youthful. It, you know, if it was barrel aged, it was not barrel aged long periods of time because that was uh, something that became a process during the industrialization of whiskey. And so, you know, we were kind of inspired by that. So that's really where we looked at, okay, we're gonna make rye whiskey. We're going to, you know, source near us. And that was really nowadays, nowadays, you know, 10 years later, um, <laughs> that isn't as big a deal. But when in 2010, 2011, when I would bring bottles of rye out and taste it at a whiskey show or at a bar, people would be like, this doesn't taste like rye. And our whiskey is made from 100% rye. So yes, it tastes like rye. <laughs> but what was the phenomenon is that so many rye whiskeys were made in one or two large distilleries, whether they be in Indiana or Kentucky, but they're really large and their whiskey is produced under 
huge number of imprints, right? Whether, you, you know, there was at that time, there was actually a little like mini, you know, kerfuffle because people weren't, you know, there is a rule that you have to label where you're the state of distillation. And a lot of people weren't doing that. But if you look on a whiskey bottle now, and it says distilled in Indiana, despite where it says it's produced, it was distilled in Indiana, probably by MGP, which sells a tremendous amount of really good whiskey. But it isn't whiskey that reflects an agricultural place. It's sourced and merchant bottled, which is great. But what we wanted to do was talk about what is the flavor, the terroir, if you will, that comes from Virginia. And so we get our, um, we have a farmer down um, near Rapp Rappahannock River. He comes and brings us grain. We have another one that's coming from Southern Pennsylvania. We're in the very tippy top of Virginia. So it's really close to Maryland and Pennsylvania. So we kind of pull from regional grain sources. And that really gives us, that fermented here, distilled here, and that gives us that flavor that really speaks to what we are, which in my kind of tasting notes, if you will, is, is we, yes, we have that little spicy flavor of rye, but it's got a fruity note too. That's like, whether it be a cola or a, um, a cola notes or citrus notes on the mid palate, it should be really nicely balanced, but you, you're, it isn't all about the spice. And that's really, I think what was really challenging for folks at that time. And as we grew and kept, you know, kept seeing different things, I kept telling people, you know, as a rye evangelist, if you will, what I was looking forward to was a time when I can go to California and I can taste a rye that was grown and made in California. And it tastes totally different than a rye that is grown and made in Virginia. You can go to, you know, hell, Sweden and taste one there, you know, and all of them are going to have different character and different flavor. And I think we're finally reaching a point where you are starting to see that, mostly coming out of small distilleries. And um, that you can go and taste a number of different ryes and they all have different personalities, just like different bourbons have different personalities and different scotches have different personalities. It, so is, it is, it, well, no, it's, but it's so true. I, I've, I've talked to a few folks, I, I think of Ryan lying at, at Middle West in Columbus, Ohio, talking about how, you know, they source, they're, they're kind of like you, they got the regional, but they found real quickly that you can grow the same grain in two different spots of the state and you get two vastly different products because of the climates, the soils and things like that. And it's, and that's what you're talking about is you're going to get different flavors and different things if it's grown different places. And, and it's really cool to see what those places can produce. Right. And it's so much more, it, you know, there, there are people who, you know, say, oh, I wish I had been around, you know, back in the seventies when bourbon was super cheap and super old and all that stuff. And frankly, I think that there's never been a better time to be a whiskey drinker because you're seeing more innovative, different whiskeys coming out of small distilleries, coming out of big distilleries. And I'll tell you, the big distilleries are innovating more. Why? Because of the pressure they feel from small distilleries coming in and innovating. And that's a win-win for consumers and for, you know, and for um, you do distilleries. We're pushing each other toward increasing the excellence of the products that you're tasting. Well, and it's really cool to see. And there's, like you said, there's some cool products that are, that have come out and, 
Yeah, you kind of touched on this because you you mentioned that you guys have always been a distillery making your own own stuff. I'm curious why that was the ult, you know, sometimes that's the ultimate goal down the road, but that it sounds like you all started from that thought of that. Why was that so important to you all to not maybe source like others have to get off off the ground, but to kind of make your own stuff and go your own route? You know, it was it was kind of one of the things we wanted to do was just kind of go with that. Um, you know, we started at about the same time as Spamber, so maybe that made us chumps, you know. Uh, <laughs> they grew a lot financed by the, you know, the sourcing game, and they did it great. They did a great job. They really skilled merchant bottlers, but that really wasn't what we wanted. And so we kind of stuck with it, even when it, you know, didn't make a lot of sense in some ways. But, um, you know, we always felt that the flavor was worth it in the end. And that's, you know, so we just keep growing steadily a little bit more every year um, and trying to kind of which in some ways has helped because we're kind of staying within our means and making these steps really thoughtfully. And then obviously your name is, is unique. Um, I'm sure you get it pronounced a million different ways, but it's (laughs) Catoctin. And and where does that name come from and what does it mean? And why did you all decide on it? It's a regional name. Um, It apparently comes from, I believe it's Algonquian Indian name and it means land of many deer, which yeah, especially this time of year. (laughs) Um, But it is a, the Catoctin Creek run is all over our county in Virginia. There's a North Fork and a South Fork and almost everywhere is within, you know, a 10 minutes of of one of the branches. Um, there's also Catoctin Creek in Maryland. The Catoctin Mountains are where Camp David is. So it's a really well-known regional name. So it, and, and honestly, it didn't even occur to us that it was hard to pronounce until we started to move outside of our region and we had to start telling everybody how to do it. So, you know, uh, but people learn to say lots of different Scotch names. So we figured they can figure this one out with our help. Exactly. Exactly. And it's a good starting point to, you know, introduce folks to, to, to the, to the whiskey when, when they're ever doing a tasting, it's a nice icebreaker. And, you know, you also do a lot of fun partnerships, whether that's the uh, Ragnarok Rye with uh, the, the metal Banguar or just some just with breweries and different things like that. Why, why are those so important to you and just how much fun are they? Oh, they're super fun. You know, um, one of the neat things that we've done and, and mostly, um, you know, up, up until we partnered with Gore um, two years ago, it was um, mostly breweries and it was kind of a, um, the kind of a partnership where it would be like, you know, they reach out, they have something. The first one we ever did was one where a local brewery had tried to do a utopias type of twice fermented concoction and it didn't work and they got stuck with this beer that was super sweet and they you know came and said hey do you guys want to try you know distilling this and we were like okay you know why not you know (laughs) and we did and we got a couple barrels worth of it and it it was really really amazing and people loved it and so we'd tag in with different breweries kind of whether they'd be they'd have something that didn't have the clarity they wanted and they wanted to kind of just try to see what they could make out of it or whether they specifically chose to distill or you know to brew something for distillation either way we kind of would come up with different things and then we co-brand that that um that 
release and have it, you know, every year or, or so we release a different malt whiskey um, that comes out of these beer collaborations. And it's, those are, those are a lot of fun. And, you know, we have one coming up in the next month or so that's called Harper's Malt. It's made with Dewclaw Brewing out of um, Maryland. So that's going to be fun. Um, but yeah, two years ago, we actually got uh, connected with the the metal band Gore through mutual, you know, con connections. Uh, Gore is, uh, I guess, a crew of intergalactic alien travelers who came here to Earth. They found that it sucks. They don't like anybody. They, you know, throw people into meat grinders in their concerts, and it's it's all very. Uh, kind of the opposite of what we do, but <laughs> they kind of came out of the punk scene and have a very do-it-yourself kind of ethos. And so they felt that there was a real connection with kind of the way that we came up, which was kind of, we built this distillery, we did it ourselves, kind of figuring it out and making it work as we went along. And so they came and talked about doing a, a whiskey and so, um, you know, we did kind of came up with the concept. They created the label art. Um, we had the idea of making their, you know, the band members, the alien heads on top of the bottles, a la like a Blanton's type topper. Um, and then this year was another release. So they had new, they had their album release. So we took the album art and adapted it. So it's really, really cool if you look it up. Um, you can look it up at doctrinecreek.com. Um, there are pictures of the Ragnarok rye and, um, you know, and, and Gore has been a lot of fun to work with. They are really, you know, they're, they're a bunch of, of, they, they consider themselves an artist collective. So for them, it's about the art and what we can do together to kind of make something fun. So, um, it's been, it's been a fun collaboration and the whiskey's great and the packaging is, is all out there. So check it out if you haven't seen it. It's really cool. Uh, I, well, some, sometimes the best things come from those unexpected relationships and, and how fun, fun they can be. And, you know, you touched on this earlier, you guys have slowly been growing and building and, and getting bigger. How has the expansion and upgrades to the distillery uh, gone over the years and, and where, where you're at now? You know, we, we really try to grow thoughtfully. Um, you know, it's the, the, one of the challenges in, in, you know, the whiskey industry is that, you know, as you're growing, you're basically putting it, it's an inventory problem, right? People carry inventory and, um, you know, inventory gets expensive. You can drive yourself with enough inventory. You can drive yourself right out of business. So you have to be really thoughtful about the way that you, you grow and the way that you invest in the brand and in how you make it. So we've, you know, we have now two locations. We have our um, main location in Percival on Main Street, where we have um, the distillery. Um, and then we have um, about 20 minutes away, a warehouse space where we can store the barrels um, and, you know, and it's available for future growth. So that was kind of the plan. And we're, as we grow, we, you know, 
we have some of this same warehouse leased out to other people, but we can take it back when the time comes that we need it. So we have a, a mechanism. It's a challenging business, but it is, you know, it is possible to kind of very carefully navigate those growth growth things. Yeah, the, the downside to, to this industry is uh, it takes time. <laughs> yes. Time is, yes. is not, you can't really speed up time, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> and uh, no. that, that makes things difficult but you, you touched on that you got a couple of spots but you got the main the main spot there what can people expect when they get to visit the distillery or, or check it out oh it's really nice we're in um we're on the main street of a, a town that was built so our our building our main building was built in um in night in um 1921 so it's just over 100 years old and it was a buick dealership back at that time so it they the tasting room was where the showroom was and then there are double doors next to it where you can walk in um and that's where the distillery is now where we we have the stills and where i ship out pallets of product onto main street loaded onto trucks um but you know folks come in they can have a, a flight we have um we're in virginia which is a control state so um this is not a bar uh virginia doesn't go for that but what what you can do is you can get a a, a mini cocktail you can get a a flight of cocktails or you can try the spirits neat um, and then you're able to take home a bottle with you. Um, we're located in outside of DC about an hour. It's in a part of, of Northern Virginia that has, is really a beautiful foothills kind of dotted with wineries and breweries. And so it's a really great place to come and explore the area. And, you know, so we get a tremendous amount of, of tourism in, you know, from from the DC and Maryland area as well. Well, that sounds like a, a perfect location, nice little uh, getaway for for anyone, yes, really. hundred percent. And in addition to kind of what you do there at, at Catoctin, you're also part of the American Craft Dealers Distillers Association. Why why is that so important to to y'all? And and what what are they able to accomplish? Um, so I got involved with the um, American Craft Spirits Association. And one of the things that we are is we are a nonprofit trade association that is owned by distilleries. So we have a dual mission. Um, one is to educate folks and get them um, so that they're ready for what gets thrown at us as small business owners, whether so we have a technical track, which talks about how you do you know, how you do the, the techniques of distilling and making good, consistent, delicious products. We also have uh, a track that talks about, you know, how do you do sales and marketing in the, in this industry, the way it is now, and how can you get your products to your customers? But the other piece that's really, you know, kind of key and what we're unique in is that we also advocate for small independent distilleries. Um, the, the industry as a whole is dominated by a handful of giant multinational corporations, right? They make an excellent product and they do really great stuff. But, you know, the people that are out there trying to create new products are, um, are essentially, you know, small business people. And we are, um, and we have everything stacked up against us. Um, as the number of distilleries has increased due to economic uh, trends and pressures 
led in the larger alcohol industry as a whole, the number of distributorships has shrunk. We are required by law to sell our products through a distributor. And so as you get more and more products coming out, distributors are swamped and they don't want to handle products that only sell maybe five or 10 cases a month. So it's a really, really difficult business project process to make a small distillery go. And we have unique challenges that wineries and breweries aren't subject to because the laws for wine and beer are very different than the laws for distilled spirits, probably and mostly because for so long since prohibition, there have only been a couple hundred, you know, less than a couple hundred distilleries in the U.S. So all the laws were written for multinational corporations and they have not modernized to keep up with the whole way things are going. So it is extremely important for small distilleries then to work together to try to make our situation better. And as there are more of us, we, ha we have to kind of work to say, okay, how do we make things work? How do we get toward the kind of industry that small wineries operate in? You know, you can go to Napa Valley and you can taste from wineries of all sizes and you can have cases of product shipped home to you. Distilleries, that's not allowed. That is absolutely illegal. I cannot ship you a product of my one of my bottles from the distillery if you pick it up here. You have to carry it home with you, which is really difficult for folks because most people don't, you know, bagging checks, get a more, you don't want to carry it. And people don't understand the rules are different. And so there's really great, really, really tough challenges ahead in the way that the um, that the industry is growing. And most small distilleries make less than 10,000 cases of product a year. So there, and that's a pretty big small distillery at 10,000 cases of product. Most people are making less than a thousand cases of product a year. 90% of the craft distilleries are selling 80% of their product out their front door. Most of them don't ship products out by the pallet. They're mostly sending them out one bottle at a time with their customers. And for those people, the ability to ship products across the country, if somebody read that you made some amazing, um, you know, whether it be a brandy or a whiskey or anything, and you read about it and you wanted to order it and you could order it online and get it across the country shipped to your house, it would be transformative because these small businesses then could prove to distributors, I can move product. And it's worth bringing my product in because it's so good that California people are going to want to drink it or people in Oregon are going to want to drink it. Right now, that's all off the table. So when you go to distributors outside of, outside of your home state, a lot of times they don't even want to talk to you. Why? Because they know that you're building a brand and building a brand is slow. And it's, it's something that their businesses are not set up to do. And so that's really one of the key things that I'm really passionate about. And that's one of the reasons I got involved with the association. So that's a little nerdy advocacy <laughs> distiller stuff. But it, it's, it, it's so true. And, it, and it's something that, you know, every, and others that might know this might not, but every state is different. You every gotta... <laughs> state is different and all the rules are different. And so it's, 
really, really tough when you're looking at a small business to even try to go to a couple other states because you have to go read all those laws and figure out, okay, what do I have to do and how do I have to distribute here, even if you can get distribution. So, you know, we want to make small businesses like mine able to be nimble and modern and you know what and we want if we get some great press because of some product release that we have we want people to be able to access it you know i've been doing this a long time and even though i have a very small distillery and we're still in you know like the small size of distilleries you know, it's taken us a long time to get to where we're even in a majority of states and most distilleries coming up and starting up right now are not getting those opportunities. And so I want to, as a person who, I want to leave the, grow this industry to be something that's more welcoming to small producers than it is now. And, and of course, be able to share, share those, those great, great bottles with anyone that, that wants them. And, and for those that are looking for those bottles, where can they find them uh, of Catoctin Creek? Where, where are you guys distri distributed and, and how can folks go about and get them? Um, we're, we're available actually in most states now. Um, we have a website. It's called byvirginiarye.com. And if you go on there, you can find out um, whether or not, you know, we're in your state or you can order us from, um, I think we're working with Barcart, so they will ship it to your house. But we are in um, probably about 30 states now. So um, most places were available. It's just a question of whether or not we're in your local. But if you go to CatoctinCreek.com, you can kind of see what states we're in. They have where to buy. And um, there's ways for you to find out where you can get a hold of us. But yeah, we're in a lot of a lot of states now, especially the big ones. Um, you know, we are available in California and Texas and Kentucky and, you know, Tennessee. We've got distributors a lot of places now. It's just a matter of, you know, kind of keeping keeping people and getting people interested enough to ask for it. Because if you, as a consumer who loves products, if you ask for somebody's product at your local liquor store, that's the biggest boost you can do for a small producer. Because that's something where that person at the liquor store will then say, well, I had somebody ask for it. I'm, I'm probably worth my time to buy it. And so I tell people all the time, even if, even if, you know, you, you can ask for my product, that's great. But if you have other products you love from local producers, ask your local liquor stores or your bars and restaurants, Hey, have you tried this? It's really great. And that's the kind of thing that really helps small businesses out a lot. And then uh, as we, we wrap this up, what's next for, for y'all? Obviously I know you've, you guys have been growing and, and, and so forth. What's, what's next and what's on the horizon? we've got, you know, we always have new releases coming out. So we've got, like I said, we have the Harper's Malt coming out. Um, I'm this right now I'm working on what the next iteration of the Ragnarok Rye is going to look like, uh, next year. Um, cause that's just fun. Um, and, you know, and we are continuing to kind of build the business steadily. And, um, we just did a big, uh, equipment expansion last year. So we're, you know, starting to use that to lay down a little more whiskey, get things caught up. Um, you know, as everybody moved out of the pandemic years, um, 
you know, it's, it, there's, people are getting out and about again and looking to go to bars and restaurants. So, you know, we're doing more um, events where we're getting in whiskey shows and, you know, doing, doing things at, um, at, at different partners places. So I'm going to hit, be hitting the road next week for Florida again. And um, I've got a good number of stops still this year before the end of the year, as far as promoting the brand. Well, I, I can't wait to see see what what you all have up your sleeves. And uh, Becky, this is, has been a blast. And folks, Katakin Creek, that's how you say it. Look it up by virginiarye.com. <laughs> and uh, thanks so much for taking some time to, to talk whiskey with me. Hey, thanks so much. I love talking whiskey. <laughs> <laughs>